Uh, what Think just for you that the warm weather's got me kind of stirred up and thinking summertime already. Apparently that's going to be premature because I heard that the weather may turn a little bad on us on the weekend. But think about your favorite summertime activities. The seven, when we hit 70 degrees, I start thinking summer. For our family, summertime usually means for us lots of cookouts on the grill, um, sitting on the back patio, having long dinners with our families or friends. It means softball season for us in our family. My daughter, Riley, who's a sophomore at Fort Collins High School, she plays competitive fast pitch. So most weekends you'll find us at a softball field for a good chunk of time. Um, summer also for me, my wife and I moved here 13 years ago from the East Coast. And where we lived in the East Coast was the Washington, D.C., Philadelphia corridor. But before we moved to Colorado, we lived in a town called Annapolis, which is right on the Chesapeake Bay, this beautiful town. And there was literally water on the Magathy River right behind our house. So when summertime came along and the temperatures got warm enough and the water temperature warmed up enough, that meant fishing. Now, I'm a recreational fisher. All right. I have some friends that they're fly fishermen and it's their passion. And they're all any kind of passionate fishermen in here tonight. None of you. So kind of sort of. All right. So you're recreational like me. And we used to be able to go behind my house, down some steps to a dock and we could catch crab and we could catch striper bass for dinner uh, while we were there. And every year, this group of friends, most of us who met in college, all right, we would take our annual early summer fishing trip. Now, just as full disclosure, none of us were really fishermen. We more liked being together and the things that happened. We would, it was always more of an adventure, really, than a fishing trip, okay? There were more injuries than fish caught. Um, we laughed with each other. We laughed at each other a great deal. But there was this group of guys that, I would call, and, and Pastor Brent might have mentioned this before, that in some people they call them providential relationships. They're relationships that God puts in your life for a certain season that have profound and transforming impact in your faith. And that was this group of guys, and there was about ten of us that would go every year. We'd go take five canoes, load up, head to somewhere. Well, the guy who always would pick the spot was the guy named Pete. Now, Pete was more of a kind of extreme sports guy. Fishing was a little slow for him. Pete was an underwater rescue diver. Pete was a uh, hot air balloon captain and licensed. Pete was an EMT. He was a professional skier before being a professional skier was cool. Not like a, a racer, but like a trick skier, right? And some of you might be like me. You're old enough to remember those ski ballet kind of things they used to do. That's what Pete did. Pete did everything. And so this one year, he decides that we're going to go down the Shenandoah River, which runs through West Virginia and Maryland. And the trip was planned. We had the canoes. But the week before we go, there's a hurricane that went through the East Coast. And we get to the river, and it's swollen about eight times its size. And Pete's like, looks like good fishing to me. And we're like, Pete, you're crazy. And, and, and I'm like, I don't think this is a great idea. He, and he's like, yeah, I don't either. Some, somebody's going to die if we do this. So we looked on the map and we found this little creek called Antietam Creek. It actually goes through Antietam Battlefield, which is a historic battlefield from the Civil War. 
just steeped in rich history, and the fishing was supposed to be very good. So we got to Antietam Creek. We um, dropped one car at the bottom where we would pull out, and we packed into several cars and drove to the top where we were putting in our canoes, and we got going. Well, part way down, my friend Jimmy, he, who, who was kind of the fisherman of the group, he, his canoe gets wedged against a tree, and it begins to fill up with water. And he had maybe $200 worth of tackle that began to float down in his waterproof tackle box that floated, which was good. And we grab it, and then it, he grabbed one, and it opened. And so all this tackle's floating around. So disaster number one has happened just within the first 15 minutes. Well, we're going down the river. We're laughing with Jimmy. We're laughing at Jimmy as we go down. And my, my friend, Dave and I, a lifelong friend who I had met in college, we're going down and we're the only ones catching fish. So these other guys are going down the river pretty quick and we're kind of pulling into some eddies and casting in and catching some fish. So the group gets way ahead of us. And we'd kind of catch up to them after a while. And we're like, you catching any fish out there? And they're like, no. And we're like, we are, you know, and we're just reel them in in front of us. And they're kind of getting mad at us. And since we're catching fish, we're going slow down the Antietam Creek. And as we're going down, Dave and I look up. We're just floating down the creek. And we look up, and the whole group kindly has waited for Dave and I. They've waited up. They were worried about us, we think, because they've gone so far ahead. I wonder if they're okay. And they've all got these big grins on their face, like they know something that we don't. Which they did, by the way. We were about to find out. And I'm looking at them, and my brain's trying to catch up what's going on because I know something's up, and I start looking around. And I notice that where they're sitting, they're actually sitting about six or seven feet on the water, but below us. It's at this point I realize a little too late. I, I drop my fishing pole. I grab the paddle and I'm like, paddle! And Dave and I start paddling and we're coming towards a spillway that's pretty imminent, which is just a sheer six foot drop off. And if we don't have enough momentum, we're just, we're gonna, it's gonna be pandemonium. So we go off this thing. We don't, we don't paddle fast enough. The nose goes in. It flips over. I'm in the back, so I'm airborne, which actually was kind of fun. I wish we had video of it. And we get dumped. We're all in there, and they're, they're laughing hysterically. And several more adventures happened along the way like that. We get back after a great trip down the river, a few fish caught, lots of laughter. And uh, I'm, I'm like, Pete, hey, let's head on up the hill in your car, and we'll grab the cars and bring them down, and we can head out to dinner. All the good stuff happened after our fishing trip when we sat around a good meal by the campfire and we shared stories and we laughed and then we started to talk about life and deeper things of life. And in this group, that was easy to do with. These were great friends. And, Pete, and then Pete starts doing this. And I'm like, Pete? He's like, mm, I think I left the keys to this car up with the other cars. So now we have to hitchhike. We hitchhike up there. We bring the cars down. We open up the hatchbacks. Everybody's got their stuff. Jimmy, who had lost all his tackle, has his five rods, very expensive rods, sitting there, kind of lined out. And uh, my friend Pat's like, okay, let's go, and slams the door, snapping all of Jimmy's rods in half because they were like, yeah. I mean, this thing kept going on. Later that night, we caught catfish at this lake after dinner. And my friend Dave's like, hey, can we lip a catfish? And I'm like, 
Well, sure, and lipping is when you stick your thumb in the mouth of a fish and you hold it up to look at it, okay? And you can do that with certain types of fish like largemouth bass. And um, I was like, I, I really don't know if you should stick your thumb in the mouth of a catfish or not. I never caught one. And Dave put it in there, and apparently they have really strong jaws. And, um, and so that was kind of the exclamation point on the evening as this catfish just bit down on my buddy's thumb. And I'm like, that is awesome right there. What's happening? I love that. But the time, the adventure, the time around the campfire, we, we began to talk about life and the deeper things of life, not just the surface level stuff. And the adventure allowed us to do that. Yearly, it's a memory of this group of guys and of my friend Dave, who eventually loved Jesus. He loved Jesus very much and eventually went to be with him um, in his early 30s. Um, had a wife and two beautiful kids. And, uh, but those memories are rich. Tonight, we're going to look at a text with a very similar situation. It's a group of Jesus' apprentices who decide to go out on a fishing trip. Now, they were some of them were professional fishermen. They had all the gear. They knew where to go, how to fish. This was their livelihood up until they met Jesus. And it picks up after Jesus had been crucified. He had died was buried and resurrected. In fact, this is John's account of what happened in Jesus' third appearance to his apprentices, his disciples. And it's in John 21. So if you have a Bible with you, if you want to pull it up on your phone or a tablet, that's fine. I don't know if you know this, Timberline has an app. Did you know there's a Timberline app you can download from the, da- the store? And it's got a Bible on it. All If you have middle school kids, they already know and have it on there because Justin Matthews told me, he's like, okay, let's look at, you know, John 21. And they're all like, and got it right there. They think it's the coolest thing. But we're going to look at John 21, verses 1 through 14. And this is John's account of what happened. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. And it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, or the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got onto the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, I love this. I don't know if you caught this, but listen, they, they list the people on the fishing trip. You've got Simon Peter, Thomas. Um, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, who's one of the authors, uh, is the author of this, and, uh, you know, the two other guys. It's like if you ask me who was on the trip, you know, well, we had Pat and we had Pete and, and, you know, these two other guys. How would you like to be the two guys not named in the bestseller of all time? I wonder if they were ever John, like, what's the deal, man? You didn't mention us. So early in the morning after a night of fishing, where they caught nothing, professional fishermen in the boat, Jesus stood on shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. Now, this isn't anything mysterious or spooky. Jesus is about 100 yards away in the early morning, so he would have been, it would have been hard to tell who it was on the other side. But he calls out to them, his voice carrying across the water in the early morning, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered, kind of, like my friends answered, no. And 
that sounds like what a fisherman would answer if you ask them if, how, you know, if you caught any fish. And if they haven't, they're going to say no. If they have been catching fish, then they're going to tell you a much longer story, some of which is true. All right? Well, Jesus says to them, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Now, those that are familiar with the life of Jesus, this is already setting off some, some uh, warning bells for you or some, some remembering in the early ministry of Jesus, something very similar happened that Luke records in Luke 5. A similar thing where Jesus says, hey, cast your net over there. And they catch this large number of fish. So they cast this net over, which meant they had to pull the net from one side of the boat. And they had to lift it over to the other. And this net had on it large lead weights that would take it down to the bottom. So moving the net from one side of the boat to the other side of the boat was not something that was easy to do. In fact, it was a great deal of work. Well, then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. The light bulb went off. He remembered. It's as if a scene from their not so distant past a few years ago. All of a sudden, John's like, I remember. I remember this command. I remember this voice. And he says, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord. He wrapped his outer garment around him, parentheses, for he had taken it off. All right, so here's the picture. is Peter's basically stripped down to his skivvies, his boxer shorts, while he fishes because it's so much work. And he takes his outer garment, and this is strange because normally what do we do when we jump into the water? We take clothing off. Peter is kind of unclothed. He puts clothing on and he jumps in the water and begins his hundred meter swim towards shore, towards Jesus. I love Peter. He just leads with the heart. He's impulsive. Don't think, throw clothes on and then go swimming. That's what he does. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed... They saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. And it was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. You're starting to sense it. This this verse seems a little strange, doesn't it? He's right in front of them. How wouldn't they know it was Jesus? But in their head is this doubt. And we'll get to that in just a second, kind of the why of that. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish also setting off some light bulbs of 5,000 people gathered where there were a few loaves of bread and fish, and he took them and he fed the crowds. This was the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples 
after he was raised from the dead. Our series that we've been doing is this series confronting Jesus. And in this encounter, at first glance, it doesn't seem like much of a confrontation, does it? It seems like kind of a fun fishing adventure with his apprentices. And it's very similar, as I mentioned, to the Luke 5 incident at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So where is the confrontation? Well, in order to understand the confrontation, we have to understand the context of what's going on that shows the tension in this story. See, they're coming face to face with Jesus, full of fear, full of failure, full of doubt. Because of what has just happened to them. In essence, they're not so much at odds with Jesus, they're at odds with themselves. And Jesus shows up and initiates relationship in their fear, in their doubt, in their failure, in their shame. And the question on their minds is, is, is he all right with us? Because the way that we've behaved. See, this is confusing to them. Imagine this. There's, we've got the end of the story, right? We've got the Bible, the full scriptures. But they watched their rabbi, the one that they believed was the Messiah, put to death by Rome, put in a tomb, and then he's appeared to them twice already, and this is the third time now on a beach. There's no categories for that. They're trying to figure out as it goes, and they're like, is this real? I know he's real, but this doesn't happen. What? They didn't understand the full scope of what was happening. And that's where you find the doubt that they talk about. I, I think they're in what I call a, a now what kind of situation. We've had, all had those, haven't we? A now what kind of situation where... At the end of, an, of something, a set of circumstances or a season or life, we're like, now what? We don't know. And there's three ways that we get to the now what situation. One would be sometimes we get to a now what situation because of our success. My friend Lee was the chaplain for the Washington Redskins. It was 1991. And immediately following the Super Bowl, okay, well, not immediately, a couple hours after it, he receives a call from the all-pro defensive end Charles Mann of the Washington Redskins, who had just beaten the Buffalo Bills 37-24. to It was Charles Mann's second Super Bowl. Eventually he'd go on to win the third with the San Francisco 49ers. And he called Lee, and he said, Lee. And he's like, yeah, Charles, congratulations. This is awesome, man. He said, Lee, is this it? He had reached the top. And he's standing in the middle of this, this dome stadium by himself while people clean up. And he's like, is this it? I, I, what, what now? What, everything I've lived my life for has just been a, what now? There's a second type of what now, or now what, that comes from out of our failures. I had the, the great experience to be a collegiate runner at George Mason University in cross country and track and field. And um, my, my kids were like, well, were you any good? And I, and I was like, well, I was good enough to get beaten by the best. 
And they're like, what? I'm like, well, I was good enough to be in races with like these big time name guys, but I wasn't a good enough runner to actually beat them in the race. So my son's like, so most of the time you lined up knowing that you weren't going to win. And I was like, yeah, that's about right. Well, one of my teammates was a guy named Rob Musio. Rob was a decathlete on our team, and he was one of the best decathletes in the world. In fact, in 1984, he went to the L.A. Um, Olympic trials in L.A. where the Olympics were going to be held. And during the he was he was just killing it. Okay, in the in the first day of the decathlon and towards the end of the day, he has an asthma attack. And he's unable to compete the second day. The favorite American to make the Olympic team, three, four years of work towards this one goal, gone like that. And in his failure, at some point lying, being treated for asthma, he had to have thought, now what? In our failures, there's now what moments. And then there's those now what moments that come from circumstances well beyond our control. I remember sitting in everyday Joe's coffee shop, Timberline Old Town, with a couple of my friends from Young Life. I was on Young Life staff for 10 years before I started working here at Timberline Church. It's always been our home church since we moved here. And my friend Greg was sitting there. We're just talking about fun stuff. And Greg, Greg's a pretty gregarious guy, and he's like, Whoa. And I'm like, yeah, Greg. He goes, bro, you got a lump on your neck. And I'm like, what are you talking about, man? A, a lump on my neck. And I'm, you know, I'm checking around. My throat's not sore. He goes, not there. He goes, kind of down here. And he stuck his finger. And I'm like, okay, so a little concerning, but we kept with our conversation. When we got done, I walked into the bathroom there at Timberline Old Town, Everyday Joe's, and I looked in the mirror and I was like, Dang, that is a big lump. How'd that get there? It was big enough that I'm like, yeah, that's not right. I probably ought to call the doctor, which is not my normal response. I don't know, you know, ladies, if it's like that with your husbands. It's like, uh, it'll get better. You know, it's like out here. I think I'll be okay. Put some ice on it, you know. I went to my doctor, and, and he, you know, he walks in. He's a friend of mine, Jeff, and he's like, hmm, whoa. That is big. And I'm like, I told you. Greg told me. And he, he said, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to send you for an ultrasound today. And the anxiety level starts ramping up, right? And he said, it doesn't really matter what it is. You're going to have to get that taken out. I'm like, no kidding. I mean, that thing is like a, you know, little second head on my neck. And so doctor's appointments, tests, two surgeries, a targeted radiation treatment, I discovered that I had thyroid cancer. And sitting there, you know, you can't help it. At least I couldn't help it. My mind goes to the worst case scenario. And I start thinking, now what? That's where these guys are. Think about what they just experienced. Just a few weeks ago, they'd entered Jerusalem, Jesus riding on a donkey on what we call Palm Sunday, where people lined the streets to see the triumphal 
entrance of Jesus to Jerusalem during Passover, and they're laying palms down, and it's a sign that he's king, and they, they hope that Jesus was going to be crowned king, and they're part of his entourage. Monday and Tuesday come along, and Jesus begins to have confrontations with the Pharisees, the serious religious, so much so that they become so angry that they begin to plot his demise, his death. Wednesday they have a little break, and on Thursday they celebrate Passover. In just 24 hours on that Thursday evening, not knowing what would happen, Jesus goes from Passover, betrayed by one of the twelve, to a prayer meeting in a garden. He's arrested. Pandemonium breaks loose as Peter becomes violent. In the morning, he's tried. He's flogged. He's mocked. He's crucified. He's dead. He's buried. Their week changed like that. And they were in control of none of it. None of it and they didn't understand what was going on. And now they're on the run for fear of their life because they think maybe we're next because we're followers, disciples, apprentices of Jesus. That's the context where we find them in fear and doubt and failure and shame. If you're a note taker, here's little things you can write down. Fear, doubt, failure, shame. That's their state of mind. Those are the things they're carrying with them out on this fishing trip. They were maybe hoping, because what we know if we look at John 20, this is kind of their first time out. They've been hiding in a room for over a week. And they're out and about now. And they thought, maybe I don't have to think about what's going on now. Just some time fishing, what we used to do, where I'm comfortable, what's known to us. And Jesus shows up. You'd like to think they were hoping he would show up, right? But I know when I have doubt, fear, shame, or failure, I'm not sure that the person who I disappointed or I feel shameful about my interaction with, I really want them to show up. I remember, well, my first high school sweetheart, Kathy. Wonderful girl, beautiful, intelligent, fun, dynamic, gregarious. And she really liked me. The problem was I really liked me more. She was great. I was a jerk. I was a 16-year-old guy. And I remember breaking up with her, the usual 16-year-old guy. It's not you, it's me kind of thing. I didn't know. You know, it was just terrible the way I handled the whole thing. I remember for like three weeks after that, I was planning new routes in the hallways of the school to get the classes so that I wouldn't bump into her. I was trying to avoid her. Because I didn't feel, I didn't want to see her. I didn't want to confront what a jerk I was. I was afraid she might be mad and confront me and tell me what a jerk I was, even though I knew. It, when, when you're in a place like this, you don't necessarily, sometimes we're conflict avoidant. 
And that's what I was. And Jesus shows up in the midst of this, and he has a conversation. And I think there's something here for us, because don't we all sometimes live in fear or with doubt, experience failure, and have sometimes hidden shame in our lives? And I think it's worth seeing how Jesus confronts these guys in the midst of those deep, deep feelings. There's a couple things to look at here to get the context so we have a a fuller picture before we have four things, four ways that Jesus confronts them. And then it's something for us, but I think also something that he has for how we're to treat others. In verse 1, it says, after Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, it happened this way. A more accurate word-for-word translation out of the Greek is this. Listen to this. After these things, which was Jesus' death on the cross, he appeared to them on Sunday when they were locked behind a closed door in the room having a prayer meeting fearful the Jews would find them. On that Easter Sunday, that's the first encounter in John 20. The second encounter in John 20 is with Thomas. Okay, so you got fear in the first one, doubt in the second encounter, all right? And they're still locked in the same room a week later, having another prayer meeting, talking about everything that's happened. And Thomas, you know, you know how it goes, most of you. He says, hey, until I can put my hands in his, his wounds, I'm not going to believe. And there's Jesus. And he says, well, Thomas. The, the word-for-word word translation says this. After these things, Jesus revealed himself to his disciples again, this time by the Sea of Tiberias, and here is how he revealed himself. That's why the NIV translates it different, because it doesn't flow very good, does it? He revealed himself, and then this is how he revealed himself. It's a double, double reveal, if you will. And then at the end of this passage, there's another reveal. So we get three reveals in 14 verses, and in the Bible, repetition is the way that themes are highlighted. Revealed, revealed, revealed is almost like you took your yellow or pink highlighter, pick your color, whichever you use, and you just highlighted the reveal. The theme, the overarching theme of this passage is Reveal. And it's used three times. And the theme is this, or the question, the thesis, if you will. How will the risen Lord, the resurrected Jesus, reveal himself to, speak with, And meet his people in all future times. That's what we're about to get to see. How is Jesus going to interact with his people in future times who are living in fear, doubt, shame, and failure? And here's the picture of what happens. The first thing to note is it says that Simon Peter, Thomas, 
also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other guys. They were all together. One commentator wonders if Revelation, the revealing of who Jesus is, is the main theme in this passage. He wonders if it is when the disciples are all together that the risen Lord most reveals himself. They're all together. Jesus reveals himself. There's two guys recorded in Luke, two of his disciples on a road to a town called Emmaus. And as they're together, what happens? Jesus reveals himself. In Acts 2, the believers are gathered together. The Holy Spirit comes. Jesus reveals himself. It's all over scriptures that when people are together, God's people, centered on Jesus, when we're all together, one of the primary ways or one of the primary patterns is that Jesus reveals himself when we're all together. And we see here not just in prayer meetings like the first two times he appeared but also out in the world, at work, when his people are gathered together, his predominant pattern or way of revealing himself is when we're together. And look what John does. The disciple who Jesus loved, Peter didn't recognize Jesus was out there. But John points to Jesus and says it's the Lord. Because sometime when we're all together, our 14ers word here at Timberline is community, When we're all together, Jesus reveals himself, but sometimes we need somebody in our community to point us towards Jesus. Sometimes we're the pointer, sometimes we're the pointee. But when we're all together, Jesus shows up, we can point each other towards him. Community, deep reach community. Peter says, I'm going fishing. They went with them in the boat. And the passage makes a point to say, and they caught nothing. Nada. The way the structure is arranged, it's like nothing, exclamation, exclamation point. Nothing. He's a failure. Think what Peter had just gone through. In Matthew 16, Jesus predicts his death, and Peter says, Never. You're not, you're not, you're not going to die. You're not going to suffer. And Jesus says to him, get away from me, Satan. That's pretty strong. You know, that's not a good day at the office, right? Get away. It'd be like me showing up here and I walk in. How are you, Pastor Derry? Get away from me, Satan. I mean, you're, you're like, the day's not going to go well. Failure for Peter. John 13, at the Passover meal, Jesus goes to wash Peter's feet. And he says, not my feet. And Jesus basically says to him, no feet, Peter, no fellowship. You don't get it. You're not getting it. John 13, he says, Jesus, I'm going to lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, paraphrase, oh, really? Before the cock crows today three times, you will betray me. And then he's arrested and Peter resorts to violence and he pulls out his sword and he chops the ear off of Malchus and Jesus puts it back on and he looks at Peter and he rebukes him and says, if you live by the sword, Peter, you die by the sword. Stop it. You don't get it. 
And then he denies Jesus. He's heartbroken. He's fearful. He's doubting. He's shamed. And Jesus shows up on the beach. That's where Peter was. Shame and failure. But there's something different about Peter. Peter's learned some lessons along the way. See, if you look back in Luke 5, in the early ministry, this encounter where they have this miraculous catch of fish, do you remember Peter's response? He says, away from me, Jesus, I am a sinful man. When Jesus does the first fish miracle, Peter pushes Jesus away. He wants distance from Jesus. Several years later, transformed and changed, he, the same miracle happens. Instead of pushing away in his doubt and shame, he runs, or better yet, swims towards Jesus. He jumps in with reckless abandon, and he says, I've got to get to Jesus. I don't want my distance. How do you react in failure, in doubt, in shame, in now what moments? Is it the wrestling? He's not afraid of the tension, but are you like away from me? Or are you jumping in and swimming towards Jesus in pursuit of him? Because you trust how he will handle you where you're at. There's four sayings that I think can wrap this up that shows us what's really going on here and how Jesus desires to meet us where we're at by the way he meets these apprentices when they're in a now what situation. There's two things going on here that we have to recognize. The first is he's in the process of restoring and ministering and caring for his friends. He recognizes where they're at. And he's inviting them. So he's restoring. But remember, he's a teacher. These are his followers. So he's not only restoring, but he's teaching them what to do. Because see, in John 20, his first two encounters, he gives them mission. He says, your mission is to do what I've done. To tell the message that I've told you. To go make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28. In fact, he gives them the Holy Spirit. So he's given mission. He's given them mission. He's given them power. And yet they're still doubting. And they're still wondering, hey, are we all right? And Peter leads the way, jumps in the water. He's not trying to figure different ways to go down the hallway to avoid bumping into Jesus. He's just straight beeline for the beach. And Jesus has four thoughts or words for them to restore them, but also saying, you do the same thing with others. Because just like I revealed myself to you, your mission is to reveal me to the rest of the world, and I'm going to do that through you. The first is this. He says to them, basically, have you caught any fish? If I could paraphrase, it's basically the question he yells out to them that day is, how are things going? And this is something you want to write down, even if you're not a note taker, because I'm, I'm going to challenge you to ask these questions. How are things going? It's a question of 
genuine interest. It's almost as if he yells out, hey, how are things going out there? What's going on? See, isn't that what a genuine friend asks of you? When you sit down, it's not, how's it going? You know, and you just kind of move on. A good friend asks that question and really means it. How's it going? Maybe another way of saying it is, what are you going through? One of my best friends said that to me in the midst of my journey with cancer. He didn't say, how's it going? Because he knew, not great. He said, hey, I don't understand. I don't have cancer. What are you going through? See, interested people are interesting people. Interested people are interesting people. And Jesus is teaching them. He's restoring them by saying, I'm interested in you. Even though, you know, all that stuff you're feeling bad about, I'm interested. How are you doing? What's going on? Second is, he says to them, hey, cast your net over to the starboard side of the boat, the right side of the boat. Cast it over. In essence, if I could paraphrase, he's simply saying, you'll want to write this down, try this. Now, Jesus gets to say this one with a little more confidence than maybe we would say it to some of our friends. He has the whole Son of God thing going for him, right? But try this. And in the midst of their failure, because sometimes failure makes us open to suggestions, more open suggestions. He says, why don't you try something different? See, when Jesus speaks, his words carry power. And sometimes they carry power to give us courage to try something that we might not have tried. If we're listening. And if we're obedient. That's kind of the miracle number one is that these guys pull the net and throw it onto the other side because of the amount of work. And they catch the fish. The second miracle in the story is the fish being caught. The third miracle is this. The net doesn't break. In Luke 5, the net tears apart. But here, this net doesn't break. It's a little different miracle going on. See, try this. When we say that with someone's best interest in mind, genuine, they're not a problem we're trying to fix. They're somebody that we love. We want to step into a greater fullness of life that God has mapped out for them. The truth be told, sometimes with my kids at the end of a long day, They'd be acting out or have a problem. And truth be told, they were a problem to be fixed. Not someone to be loved and cared for. But Jesus lovingly in their doubt and shame, failure and fear, says, hey, try this. And they do. And look what happens. I wonder if we're attentive to the suggestions maybe God's making to us to try this moments in our life. If we hear, see his voice, 
or open to what he's asking us to do. Next is, I'd like to use some of what you have. He wants to, he says to them, hey, bring some of those fish you just caught. Did they really catch the fish? Nah, he provided the fish, didn't he? But he's gracious. He'd like to use what we have. Which is similar language to the feeding of the 5,000. Where he says, ah, just bring what you have. It doesn't have to be much. What do, you, what do you got? In this case, they had abundance. Just bring some of what you have. I'd like to use it. And Jesus wants to use what we have in his kingdom work. He invites us into what he is doing to give us purpose, to give us dignity, to give us hope. To, to make us wake up in the morning ready for our feet to hit the floor, expectantly knowing that if I just bring a little of what I have, he will multiply it. That what I have plus him is, as Dick Foth, it's sufficient. It's more than enough. And we get to participate in God's kingdom work and what he's doing in this world by the way we live. And he's not only restoring our dignity, helping us step into his best for our lives, but he's teaching us to call it out in others. He's saying to these guys, just like I'm saying, hey, you have something to offer. And with me, it's enough. You do the same. Because that's my message to all the people. That's exciting. Lastly, let's have a meal together. He says to them, let's have a meal together. And he, he takes, presents them bread and fish and they eat together and they sit around the campfire at the end of a great fishing adventure talking about what's going on. John didn't record it, but you can imagine the conversation and the camaraderie and how how shame and doubt it begins to melt away in the presence of Jesus and it turns the joy and it turns the laughter and it turns the freedom. As they talk about life and God and where their lives intersect and Jesus says, this is what you're to do with other people. So do this. Ask people how it's going because interesting people are interested people. And then when it makes sense, give wise, godly counsel to them and say, try this. That's what a good friend does. Point them towards Jesus and God's way of life. Thirdly, it's to look at them and say, hey, God's gifted you. You've got something to offer. And you know what? If you'll take what you offer and you'll bring it to him. It'll be more than enough and he'll do things you couldn't even ask for or imagine in your life. And then let's sit down and have a meal together. Janice, if you could throw up that slide. This slide here, I'm going to end with this. And then we'll, um, we'll celebrate a meal together. The Lord's Supper. That's my daughter on the right with a really confused look on her face. That's Shannon. She's a 
sophomore at Azusa Pacific studying in Ecuador this semester. And that's my daughter, Riley, on the left-hand side. They're sitting on our counter. I always said, I shared this a couple weeks ago, that if I ever build a house, I'm going to build it with stadium seating around the kitchen because that's where people just tend to sit. And I was cooking dinner, and they came and sat with me. And for the next 45 minutes while I cooked dinner, we talked. It started on the surface, but then we talked about deeper things, friends, aspirations, hopes, dreams, God, their faith. I talked with them, mostly they talked, and then they'd ask me a question. And it was this beautiful moment that's going on, and I was like, i got to get a picture of this. That's why Shannon has the look she does on her face. She didn't know it was coming. There's something that happens around the table. It's why Jesus had so many meals with people. When his or people are together, centered around Jesus, having a meal with genuine interest, pointing them towards each other towards Jesus, Jesus shows up. And he says, do this. You're going to be my way of revealing me to the world. Even in your shame, your doubt, and your fear and failure. Because the truth is, our failure often is the best backdrop to make the grace and mercy and love of Jesus pop off the canvas for others to see. That's how Jesus confronts us when we find ourselves in these now what moments.